So Daniel chapter 11, picking it up in verse 36. Actually, what we're going to read today, just to to get us on track, is reading chapter 12 together. So that's what will be up on the screen. So we're going to go back and pick it up in verse 36 uh, from the point of view of teaching. But for reading, we're going to pick it up in chapter 12, verse 1. So God's word says, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man, excuse me, and one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven. And swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been uh, completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will rise to your inheritance at the end of the days. So, Lord, as we consider these incredible, wonderful words that you gave to your servant Daniel that he didn't understand at the time, but certainly now in these latter days that we're living in, as he's with you in heaven, uh, no doubt he understands much more clearly. And Lord, we want to make sure we understand. And you say right here in in the word that those who do not know you cannot understand these things. It's just like you said in the New Testament, Lord, that those who are are unborn uh, again, who, who have never trusted Christ, it says they cannot understand the things of God for they are spiritually discerned because they are dead spiritually. But Lord, when you give someone life, when they get saved, when they come to Christ, you do more than just give us salvation. You give us wisdom. You give us enlightenment. You give us understanding. 
especially of the things in your word. And so we pray this morning you would do that and more as we consider all that you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week in chapter 11, we had considered that historical prophecy, uh, all of which had been fulfilled in verses 1 through 35. We had mentioned that there were approximately 135 prophecies that are fulfilled in Daniel chapter 11. We didn't go into great depth and detail, but we went into enough that hopefully you can see that God is very precise about his prophecies. He's not loose. He doesn't give uh, prophecies that are so big that you can drive a truck through them. Uh, He makes them very precise for a reason. We saw this Uh, We've seen this all the way through the prophetic section of Daniel, but especially when we got to chapter 9, which we will again reconsider next week on Palm Sunday, about the accuracy of the coming of the Messiah for the first time and when he would come and how he would come. And so last week we looked, uh, beginning back at the, the beginning of Daniel chapter 11, we looked at the prophecies of Greece, the prophecies of the king of the north, which was Syria, the king of the south, which was Egypt. We listed out their names, the Ptolemy lines for Egypt and the uh, Seleucus line for um, Syria. And then toward the end, beginning in verse 21 down through verse 35, we looked at the prophecies about Antiochus Epiphanes, who was this very, very, very evil man from Syria. And he became a type. He is a type of the Antichrist. Uh, he is called there in Daniel eleven twenty two through 27, a vile person. And then in verses 28 through 35 again, he is called again a vile person. So this vile person who fails to conquer the king of the south the first time, but he conquers the holy land with great violence. He was so frustrated by his failure to conquer Egypt that he just decimated Israel. And then beginning in verse 36, we begin to see how this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, although he acted in verses 36 through the end of chapter 11, were fulfilled in him during those days. This also is one of those passages that sort of has a, the near and the far fulfillment, the near being what happened to him and through him during those days, but the far pointing down the annals of history to the time of the tribulation. So picking it up in verse 36 of chapter 11, then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every God, shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. So at the end of the the reign here of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, Uh, There are certain things that would be fulfilled in the Antichrist, but in uh, Antiochus Epiphanes himself, um, he himself was just such a vile man that nobody wanted to go up against him. And when he was living during these days, he was just an extremely vicious man. Uh, He was not merciful. There was no grace. And when he killed people, he killed men, women, and children. He was just a brutal man. He's important as a historical character, but he's also mostly important to us for our purposes in looking forward to the Antichrist. And he becomes a type or a prefiguring of the ultimate evil person who is 
the Antichrist. In fact, this section of Scripture, if we wanted to put it in modern terms, 1136 through the end of chapter 11, is like a movie trailer. It's a preview of coming attractions, of what's going to happen. So when it says in uh, that verse there, verse 36, he shall exalt and magnify himself above every God, he didn't care who was in power. He didn't care if there was a God. He probably would have uh, treated himself as an atheist. And he wanted people to worship him. And he did uh, sort of believe in the um, Greek gods. We'll find out in a few minutes that he did set up uh, what was called the abomination that causes desolation in the temple when he conquered Jerusalem. He went in, he set up an idol to Zeus, which I assume was more from the point of view of just mocking, saying, where is your God, almighty Jew, as he did that? And then because he knew the Jews uh, had strict dietary laws against pork, he took a pig into the altar and slaughtered a pig as a sacrifice on the altar. So he didn't just do things. He did things in a mean-spirited way. He did things to humiliate the people of God. And it says, he shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. You know, it's hard for us to understand as we look down through history why evil people have been allowed to to do the things that they've done, the atrocities that they've committed, the war crimes. We, we certainly look in our own history to the massacre of the Jews through the Nazi regime in World War II. But there are so many other times and other places where evil people, evil men have come on the scene and they've done terrible, horrible things. And we say, Why? And I would direct you to the Psalms, just as we read this morning, we had a little preview of it in Psalm 120, that there are people who speak vile things, who have evil tongues. And we know the book of Proverbs tells us that uh, the tongue stirs up strife. And if, and if people can stir up strife, then, you know, it's so often words that cause people to go to war. When we see things happen where two people are escalating, it's usually because it, it was a war of words, one will against another, one prideful person against another prideful person. And yet, strangely, in all these ways, God has been in control. God has allowed these things to happen. And we might question God on that one day. We, you know, we sort of say, hey, when I get to heaven one day, I'm going to ask God these questions. God, why did you allow this to happen? Why did you allow that evil, evil person to do this or to do that? But I believe when we come into his presence, as the book of Revelation is going to tell us, all of our questions will be answered without a word. And when we come into his presence, we will fall down before his throne. And in that moment before him, you know, John tells us in 1 John chapter 3 that we, when we see him, we shall become like him, for we shall see him as he truly is. And in that moment, I believe all of our questions are going to be answered. Because you see, even as we've been looking at this book of Daniel, when God allowed the Babylonians to come and to conquer the southern kingdom, to conquer Jerusalem to conquer Judah. 
It was because they had been disobedient. So God used evil people to serve his purposes, to to carry out a judgment, to carry out a sentence. Rather than God himself putting them in prison and those kinds of things, he himself did it through other rulers. In verse 37 of Daniel chapter 11, when it says, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any God for he shall exalt himself above them all. We can see how this is sort of uh, pre-shadowing what the Antichrist might be like. In fact, it's this very verse that some infer that the Antichrist may be a gay man. I think that's a misinterpretation. Let's read this again. He shall regard neither the God of his father, so he pays no respect or homage to tradition or to religion, uh, nor the desire of women, let me come back to that, nor regard any God, for he he shall exalt himself above them all. Let's read verse 38. But in their place, he shall honor a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Because this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was this man we're talking about here, was so preoccupied as at the end of verse 37, for he shall exalt himself above them all. I believe that he's not regarding gods, he's not regarding women. In other words, he has no time for, he doesn't care about getting involved with women. Uh, He doesn't care about uh, any so-called God's big G or so-called God's little G. He's just concerned about one thing, and that's his own glory, his own glory. And so he's just focused on his mission, and his mission is madness. His mission is his pride. His mission is to rule and to reign over people. He is a bloodlust, power-hungry kind of a person. And I believe the reason it says that he does not have the desire of women is just basically, hey man, I don't have time for that. I'm on a mission. And so the Antichrist here, as he foreshadows the Antichrist, will take hold of power, just like Antiochus did. Only what Antiochus Epiphanes did was was a shadow of what's going to happen when the real Antichrist comes on the scene. So moving down to verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south, remember this was the the king of Egypt, shall attack him, who was the king of the north in Syria, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries and overwhelm them and pass through. So it's saying that Antiochus in his day would rise up and rule and win, and he did, but this is also looking at the Antichrist that is to come. And he shall also enter the glorious land, which is Israel, it's Jerusalem. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. And this just sort of illustrates the principle that God always has a remnant of people he preserves and reserves for himself. Verse 42, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So he was defeated initially, 
But when he comes back to defeat and win over Egypt, he will do it in a ruthless and a brutal way. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians. If you get out your map and look, Libya and Ethiopia are a part of North Africa. And shall follow at his heels. So he shall have great success and he'll gain all this wealth and gain that power. Remember, money is power. So he's gaining all this power. But the news, verse 44, from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. There are others who will hear about his success. And they will come to come against him, perhaps in a righteous way, to say, hey, we have somebody's going to stop this guy. But also... Uh, they're probably coming to say, you know, he's conquered and he's got all these riches. We need to go take those from him. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. So when the other nations would come against him, finally, he will have no allies because of how he's treated other people, because how, of how he's lived his life. He's been only and always about himself. It's always been about him and his kingdom. It's been about the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I from his point of view. So he shall come to his end and no one will help him. And so it will be as we look down through time at the Antichrist. Now as we get into chapter 12, verse 1, he says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. So beginning with chapter 12, the Spirit of God, God himself, now switches to the actual Antichrist. He switches to looking down through history at the end of time. So in verse 12 here, he mentions Michael, the last time we heard Michael mentioned was back in chapter 10 where uh, the angel Gabriel had told him that I was trying to come to you to deliver the answer to your prayer, but I couldn't get through because the prince of Persia withstood me 21 days and Michael had to come and help me. It took two of us to fight him off so that I could get through to bring this message to you from God. And so here in verse one, we find an interesting little piece of information the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. It would seem that Michael, this angel, is appointed to watch over the Jewish people. That God has set his own angel, the great and mighty angel, Michael, to watch over the Jewish people. And he says, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. In other words, that whatever... Israel has gone through up until this point in the time of the end, which is still yet future for us, that of all the things that the Israelis, the Jewish people have suffered throughout history, when they enter the time of the tribulation, it will be like nothing the world has ever seen. There will be a furious revolt against Israel. And he says... Uh, there, shall never, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered. Now, a couple of things about Michael before we go on. 
Michael is often in the scriptures associated with spiritual battle. If you go search on his name, you're only going to find around five verses that mention his name. In chapter 10, verse 13, he said, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. We just talked about that. Um, In verse 21 of chapter 10, I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth, and no one upholds me against these, these opposing forces, except Michael, your prince. And then in Jude, chapter 1, verse 9, there's only one chapter in Jude, we are told there that Michael, the archangel, so we are told that he is not an archangel, but he is the archangel of God. He's the chief, he's the leader, he's the prominent angel in God's army. And it says, yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses dared not bring against him a reviling accusation but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so even though Michael has the the power and the authority of God given to him by decree, when he stood against the devil back during the days when Moses passed away, It seemed that there was a dispute over the body of Moses, and this dispute over the body of Moses is of great debate. We'll get into this more in the book of Revelation, but essentially, people are saying, when you start to think about the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, they're like, well, well, who are those two witnesses? And so again, we'll get into that when we get there, but what people believe because of this verse that Moses was one of those witnesses, that just as Moses and Elijah appeared with, with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, representing the law and the prophets, that so Moses will probably likely be one of those two witnesses there uh, by the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem during the time of the tribulation. And this would explain why the devil was so hot to get access to the body of Moses. If he could get that, then he could prevent Revelation 11 from taking place. So that's a theory, that's speculation. But in my mind, it holds some water. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So that uh, section in Revelation chapter 12 seems to be referring all the way back to the beginning of eternity past when Satan and his angels rebelled against God. And so Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and it says essentially they were kicked out of heaven. There was no place in heaven for them any longer. So this man, Michael, Here, being given a very prominent position, the archangel of God, the one who stands as guardian over the people of Israel. And it says there at that time, when they get into this, this time of trouble such as never been seen, he says, your people, that is the Jews, the Israelites, shall be delivered. And he says, not everyone, but just those whose name are found written in the book. Now we could do a whole study here just looking at the different books that are mentioned with the books of names, the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And we believe that those are all pretty much synonymous. But during this time, only those whose names are found written in the book, in God's book, only those shall be righteous. So it's not saying that every Jew who ever lived will be saved or delivered, but only those whose name was written in the book meaning those who believed. I love what Paul said in Romans chapter 11. 
He says in verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So when he says that all Israel is saved, he's saying that the deliverer, the Messiah would come and he would provide atonement for the sins of all of God's people, the Jewish people. But as we know, and again, there's so many places that bear this out, not all of them will believe. Not all of them will accept Jesus as their Messiah. We certainly know from the Gospels that the first time around, many, if not most of them, rejected Jesus. And we'll find out as we get into the book of Revelation when God ordains the 144,000 Jewish witnesses as evangelists, they'll go out and they'll preach the gospel not only to the Jewish people, but to the whole world. And even then, the Jewish people, and by the way, the time of the tribulation is specifically Jewish. It's specifically focused on Israel. Although the world will experience the wrath of God, it's all about Israel. And God is giving them one last chance to turn and to believe in him, to believe in his Messiah, his son, the Lord Jesus. And in verse two, he speaks of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So he's speaking of a resurrection of the dead, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And we know that the rest of the scriptures bear this out, that there are two resurrections. There's one for the just and one for the unjust. In John chapter 5, Jesus said in verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all those who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Two resurrections. One for the just, one for the unjust. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse four. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshiped the beast. So this is the tribulation saints or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they were resurrected to reign with Jesus in the millennial kingdom. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. In the first resurrection... The saints will rule and reign with Christ during the millennial period. But in that second resurrection at the end of the millennium is when the great white throne judgment will take place. Verse three, so those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The book of Proverbs is about wisdom, is it not? The beginning of knowledge The beginning of wisdom, it's the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord. James tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all people generously. Notice it says here, 
that those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. See, I believe it's not just those who are evangelists who have that kind of a gift. But for any one of us, for any person, Jew or Gentile, who will talk about God, who will share Jesus, who will talk about biblical truth, someone who leads people to Christ, God looks at that person and says, this person is valuable. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30, listen to this. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Proverbs 14, 25, a true witness delivers souls. So for those who will speak, who have been saved, who have been given the wisdom of God, if you read in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the wisdom of God is foolishness to men, and the foolishness, the wisdom of men is foolishness to God. So those who think they are wise which is pretty much everybody in the world today, right? Those who think they're wise, they think they're wise because they can whip out their smartphone and in 0.27 seconds get answers to their questions and defeat you in the game that you're playing or whatever point of knowledge that you're arguing over. They think that makes them wise, that makes them smart. I have a friend, and this is a very, to me, a sad story, that they believe because they can look up all the medical conditions online that they can self-diagnose, they don't need to go to a doctor. And so because of that, they are uh, treating themselves. It's a very dangerous thing. Do you know you can go to blood labs today and have your own blood drawn and see what your levels are in certain categories and You can go look that up. Hey, what does this mean when this is high and that's low? What should I do? Oh, well, that indicates these 12 12 potential things are wrong. How do you diagnose that? But people are doing it. It's crazy. But what makes us wise? And again, we read Psalm 119. We've just been reading through it over these last few weeks. It says, your word makes me wise. Wisdom comes from God. And so the wisdom of God enables us to do things like win souls. We may look at it and say, it's impossible for me, and it is. It's impossible for me, it's impossible for you to win souls. But the spirit-filled person, the person who's willing to yield to God, well, that person can do anything. Didn't Paul say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? You see, there are so many things we look at in life and we say, man, that's impossible. What is impossible for man is possible for God. One commentator pointed out here about verse three, it is worth it to invest our lives into things that last forever and ever. That's where the true reward comes. Didn't Jesus say, lay up uh, treasures for yourself in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal? How do we do that? We're looking to the future. How do we store up those heavenly rewards? Through things like this. Just tell other people about Jesus. But he says in verse four, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. 
When he tells Daniel to shut up the words and to seal the book, here's what some of what we've seen so far in these prophecies that God has been given, giving to Daniel. We see a world ruler who is utterly opposed to God. We see a world religion based on the abomination of desolation. We see a world war which defeats the ruler. We see a time of great tribulation for Israel lasting three and one half years. We see a deliverance for the people of God after the tribulation. We see resurrection, we see judgment, and we see rewards for the righteous. And Daniel's looking at all these things, verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank, going all the way back to Daniel chapter 10. Remember, chapters 10, 11, and 12 all go together. Back at the beginning of chapter 10, Daniel said now in verse 4, Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris. So the context of these three chapters, 10 and 11 and 12, is that Daniel is by this riverbank, just like John was on the Isle of Patmos for the entire revelation of the vision that God gave him. So Daniel, for these last three chapters, has been standing on the riverbank of the Tigris, and God is allowing him to see all of these things. And in verse 6, one said to the man clothed in linen, so you kind of get the idea here that there's some other people, mostly angels involved of some kind, and the one, uh, and said the one man clothed in linen who was above the water, so now Daniel's there, there's a man, you know, floating in space above the waters, this angel most likely, And he says, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? And it would seem like he's asking the question because Daniel didn't know to ask the question. And it's sort of like asking that leading question, saying, oh, maybe you should explain to him what what this is about. How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Because Daniel most assuredly had that question in his heart. And verse 7, then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and then his left to heaven and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. So he is, as we understand it here, clearly talking about three and a half years, a time, one year, times, two years, and half a time, half a year, three and a half years. You say, how do we get there? Well, In Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, it was described as the period that the saints are given into the Antichrist's hands. In Daniel 9, 27, it's described as the period between the breaking of the Antichrist's covenant with Israel and the erection of the abomination of desolation, which will lead to the establishing of Jesus' kingdom at the end of the tribulation. In Daniel 12, 7, it's described as the duration of the time of trouble for Israel, In Revelation 11.2, it's described as the period that the holy city will be tread underfoot by Gentiles. And in Revelation 11.3, it's described as the period of ministry for the two witnesses. So these things are all listed out for us. We're not just looking at this one section. This three and a half years or time, times, and half a time is described in other places. In Revelation 12.6 and 12.14, it's described as the period that Israel is preserved by God in the wilderness. And so that's the 
God leading his people out during the the reign of the the terror of the Antichrist following the abomination of desolation. God takes his people out to the area of Petra and he preserves them in the wilderness during the time of the wrath of the Antichrist. In Revelation 13.5, it's described as the duration of Antichrist's authority to rule, to persecute, and to blaspheme. So in verse 8, Daniel says, although I heard... I didn't understand. I didn't know what it meant. And then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? What do these things mean? When are they going to take place? When will it end? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So essentially, Daniel is told, seal it up. Don't worry about it. It's not something we're going to share with you right now. It's classified. And when the time is right, we will reveal it. We will unveil what is happening. And I believe that is exactly what happens in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation means the unveiling. The word revelation means unveiling. And who and what is being unveiled? It's Jesus Christ himself. Yes, the Antichrist will be unveiled and other things will be unveiled. But it's all, Revelation is all about Jesus. So he said, go your way, Daniel, put it aside, let it go. It's sealed till the time of the end. And maybe we should stop and point out here for a moment that there are times in our lives, just by way of application of this principle, and perhaps we've all done this, I've done this, when something's happened in your life and you're looking at it, you're looking back on it, whether it was recent or in the past, and you're just like, you can't get over it. It's like, Lord, what about this? And I have this question, and, and, and what about this? And why did that happen? And how am I ever going to make sense about, about it? These are the things, of course, that drive people to therapy, correct? But so often, these are the things that God would say if we would just read his word. Look, the past is the past. Let it go. Walk away from it. Paul the Apostle says in the book of Philippians, he says, this one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. He's talking about when he came to Christ. I forget what lies behind and I press forward for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We waste too much time on the pain from the past. You know what? One day when we get to heaven, God will make it right. But on this side of heaven, we have wounds and scars, both, both physical and literal and emotional, that we will never have answers to on this side of heaven. So let it go until we stand before him. And then he will answer. Then he will show us why and how. What was the purpose? Why did God allow us to go through those things? So Daniel was told, Daniel, you can't understand at this time. It's for a time yet future. And in verse 10, many shall be purified and made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. So some will be saved, the righteous will be guided in the paths of righteousness, but the wicked, they're going to do what they do. The wicked will be wicked. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. I think there's a general principle here about the word of God and about truth, but he's also, again, looking down during the time of the tribulation. And when the world enters into the tribulation and we believe the church will be raptured and taken out just before that and 
the week after Easter, we're going to talk about the rapture of the church and what is that and where did it come from and why do we believe it? But God will take his church out and preserve them. And he says, none of the wicked shall understand. The wise shall understand. One commentator said this, and I liked what he said. The understanding of prophecy especially requires spiritual insight and the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Even though the scriptures describe in great detail the time of the end, it is obvious that the wicked will not avail themselves of this divine revelation, but it will be a source of comfort and direction to true believers in God. Divine revelation is often given in such a way that its meaning is hidden to the unregenerate, even though it is understandable by those who are spiritually minded. He's just expressing what the Bible says. The spiritual can understand the the unspiritual, the unredeemed. Those who are not saved cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Then in verse 12, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So Antiochus Epiphanes was a type of this. He took... Uh, the temple by storm, he went in, he set up his image of Zeus, he sacrificed a pig to mock God and to mock the Jews. But the Antichrist w- will do something far worse. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and you can go read this on your own, Paul there talks about when that happens, when the Antichrist goes in. That will draw the wrath of God, that will draw the, the ire of of the Jewish people, and there will be a war such as never been on the face of the earth. I think this is interesting. Sorry to read this to you, but I think it helps sort of bring some context and help define what uh, is being explained here. Um, It's for a time, times, and half a time. They will trample the holy city for 42 months, Revelation 11.2. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has has a place that's prepared by God in which she is able to be nourished for 1260 days in Revelation chapter 12. For she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, speaking of the dragon. And all these passages refer to one and the same period of oppression and trouble under the Antichrist. And in each instance of the measure, it's three and a half years, dating from the breaking of the league and the suspension of the daily offering to the destruction of the monster or the Antichrist by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our Lord ministered on earth three and a half years. The Antichrist shall enact his satanic ministry for the same length of time, three and a half years. And then he says in verse 12, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So people question, what is this 1,260 days, 1,290 days, 1,335 days? Again, Uh, Just to read something to you to help put some context to it. Uh, The question of the meaning of the number of days is further complicated by verse 12 that states there is a special blessing for the one who who waits and arrives at the 1335 days. 
This is still another 45 days beyond the limit of verse 11. And although Daniel did not explain this duration, it's obvious that the second coming of Christ and the establishment of his millennial kingdom requires time. The 1260-day period, the three and a half years, or precisely 42 months of 30 days each, can be regarded as culminating with the second advent itself. So at the end of the three and a half years is when Jesus comes to set up his millennial kingdom. It's the second coming of Christ. But this is followed by several divine judgments. We know in Matthew chapter 25, we're we're told about the separation of the sheep and the goats. And so there is time there where Jesus... Uh, regathers Israel and he, he judges these people, these different people groups. And these judgments begin with the living on the earth and then the purging out of unbelievers who have worshipped the beast during the time of the tribulation. And although handled quickly will require time, at least from the human point of view. And by the end of the 1335 days or 75 days after the second coming of Jesus, these great judgments will have been accomplished and the millennial kingdom will have formally been established and launched. Those who attain to this period are obviously those who have been judged worthy to enter the kingdom because they are called blessed. And then in Daniel twelve thirteen, as we come to the end, but go your way, you go your way, Daniel, till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. So here, Here's the end of the dramatic book of Daniel. Daniel, go your way, rest, seal up the prophecy until the end, and you will receive your inheritance at the end of time. So Daniel, now you're going to have to wait. Adam Clark, a commentator, said from this point in verse 13, every man has his own way to go. And every man, every person has their own end. But there is a rest provided for the people of God. The book of Hebrews tells us this. There is an inheritance for the people of God. But too often, you see, we get distracted. We get our eyes onto other people and to other things. I do this all the time. It drives me crazy. And yet we find at the end of the Gospel of John that Peter and Jesus were interacting and Jesus had been restoring Peter from when he had denied Jesus three times where he said to Peter three times, do you love me? You may recall that passage. And then after that exchange, Jesus and Peter are talking and in John 21, beginning in verse 21, Peter, seeing him, meaning John, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Setting his eyes on someone else, on his brother in Christ. And Jesus said, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, Peter, you keep your eyes on me. Don't look at him. Don't look at them. Don't look at those. You look at me. So Daniel was not to spend his time and energy, nor shall we, in speculating and worrying about things that maybe we don't know or that are beyond us or that have not yet been revealed. But what we should do is simply obey God's word, keep our focus on Jesus, pray, and abide in Christ. We must all walk with God. Finally, John Walvert said this, and I love his summation. For Christians living in the age of grace and searching for understanding of these difficult days that may be bringing a close to God's purpose in his church, 
The book of Daniel casts a broad light on contemporary events, foreshadowing the the consummation. You see, if God is reviving his people, Israel, politically, certainly he has been doing that since 1948 when Israel became a nation again. Listen to this, and I underlined this in red, and I want you to hear it. Allowing the church to drift into indifference and apostasy. Because Jesus said, the closer we get to the time of the end, he says, the love of many will grow cold. And there's all the warnings and all the epistles about the church drifting and moving away from the truth. And we come to that incredible letter in the book of Revelation, the last of the seven letters that Jesus himself wrote to Laodicea, which was a lukewarm church. And he said, I would, I would rather you be hot or cold, but instead you're lukewarm and I will spit you out of my mouth. I will spew you out of my mouth. You see, in the time leading up to the end, the church itself We're supposed to be his bride. We're supposed to be his beacon. We're supposed to be the salt and light of the world. But the church falls asleep. The church drifts into indifference and apostasy. He says God is orchestrating these things and permitting the nations to move towards centralization of political power and money and currency. It may not be long before the time of the end will overtake the world, and many who look for the coming of the Lord anticipate their removal from the earth's scene before the final days of the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. As I was thinking about this, this phrase came to my mind. I knew it was in the Psalms, and I searched on it, and I found it in Psalm 12. And I think this again illustrates, you know, it's interesting. We don't plan these things. We just kind of go through the Psalms this morning, Psalm 120. Uh, Listen to Psalm 12 and how it aligns with what Psalm 120 said. To the chief musician from the Psalm of David, and he says, Help, O Lord, for the godly man ceases. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Don't you kind of feel as you look out across the spiritual landscape that rather than the godly increasing in number and all of that, that the godly man, the faithful man, the faithful person is sort of disappearing. The influence of the church is waning. Abortion is increasing. All of these, these crazy things going on. We, we could go down and look at a list of news headlines from yesterday and say the godly man is ceasing to be based on those headlines. It says, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of man. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips, with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail and our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? That's why we sing the song, I'm not my own. My lips should speak the praises of God. My lips should speak wholesome things and things that might give grace to the hearers, Paul tells us in Ephesians. We should not be like the world. We shouldn't, you know, you know, think about the people you deal with in the world and at work. If people look at us and they see no distinction, if they don't see the mark of Christ on us, then what are we doing? Have we fallen asleep? For the oppression of the poor, the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. 
You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Again, we're living in this, right? We're living in this. The thing that's been just stirring my heart lately is, you know, you have the TV on and whatever, you're watching whatever, is this RuPaul's Drag Race. It is on every channel. They're advertising it on every channel. And think about that. These are men dressing as women. And they are celebrating it. And they are doing all these things that are just so outlandish and ostentatious. And people are dialing into this. My wife was talking to a young girl the other day through, uh, just through the agency where we get help with Rebecca. And she was saying something to the effect of, hey, are you going to go home tonight and watch this? It's going to be a great episode of the drag race. You've got you to see it. And people are watching this. Kids are tuning into this. This is shaping the minds of people. It's shaping the direction of our future leaders. Because everybody who's in their teens now, this is what they're doing, right? They're online gaming and they're watching this kind of stuff. And this is where they are headed. So the time of the end is drawing near. And this is a time, and and you know, I'm going to end with this. I didn't have this in my notes, but... Turn with me to Revelation 13, excuse me. Uh, Romans 13. Romans 13, beginning in verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore... Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness, but in stri- not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. This is the call as we are hurtling down history toward the time of the tribulation. Let's not be the sleeping church. Let's be the awake church. Let's be the church that, like our name implies, is shining the light. Let's be bold in our witness. Let's not be content with the status quo. Let's not continue to live our lives resisting change. Change is inevitable, and if we are going to live godly and righteously in this dark and this perverse time, change is necessary. Change in me, change in you. We need to be conformed to the image of Christ and allow God to do that work within us. You see, just as in abiding with Christ in John 15, God wants to bear the fruit in our lives. It's not that we strain to bear fruit. The fruit comes as we live in him, as we abide in him. How do I do that? I just keep my nose in the book. I read, I pray. I say, Lord, I'm here. Speak to me, minister to me, teach me. And if we will do that, God will fill us up. God will set us straight. God changes us from the inside out. We have it backwards. We want to change ourselves from the outside in. It doesn't work that way. He wants to change us from the inside out. We are a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new.
Let the light shine. Lord, we love you this morning. We bless you. We just thank you, Lord, for what you've been doing, how you've spoken to us through the book of Daniel. God, this morning, we just open our hearts to you. And we trust that as we uh, sing this song and as we go out, that you send us out. You send us out with love, with grace, with mercy, with the filling of the Spirit. And you want to make us like those rivers of living water that you spoke about in John 7 that uh, would gush forth from the, the life and the heart of the person who's willing to be open to you. So Lord, do that. Do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all that we can ask or think through Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for every one of us as brothers and sisters here this morning that you would just speak to us, God. 